brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 22 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. A tapped wire. Jimmy Dale settled back in his seat. The car moved swiftly, smoothly downtown. It wasn't so bad, not so very much worse than being in bed. It was quite all right. He stared out of the windows. He had no plans, no definite plans. How could he have? Somewhere, somehow. He must pick up the trail of the Phantom's associates. That was all. And Mother Margot offered by far the best and surest way, if she were back. Obviously, therefore, the first move was to find out if Mother Margot had returned, and he would know that in a few minutes now. And if she were still away? His lips tightened grimly. The sanctuary, Smarlinghue, a spectre haunting the bad lands through the night perhaps hopelessly. He had done that on so many nights before. What other way was there to find Bunty Myers? He lighted a cigarette. Occasionally he shifted his position. He told himself that it was only because the bandage was so tight that he was beginning to experience a little discomfort. The car circled around Washington Square and made its way into West Broadway. Presently it stopped. Jimmy Dale got out. "'Wait half an hour for me, Benson.' he said quietly. No more. If I'm not here by then, take the car back home. He did not wait for a reply. Half a block ahead was Thompson Street. He started toward it. His coat was tightly buttoned around his throat, his collar turned up, his slouch head pulled toughly down over his eyes. He swung around the corner, walking with his hands in his pockets. The narrow street seethed with its usual nightlife. Half-naked children tumbled in the gutters and played beneath the wheels of the pushcarts that flanked the sidewalks on both sides of the road. Banjo torches spluttered and flung out fantastic flares. Shawled women, dark, swarthy, elbowed about the carts. Men who wore earrings and chattered in strange tongues lounged on the sidewalk or jostled their way along in a sort of aimless fashion. The place was a din, a hubbub, the hawkers cried their wares. 
Jimmy Dale made his way along with studied carelessness, and suddenly, nodding sharply to himself in satisfaction, he edged out to the curb. Mother Margot was back. True, the old hag herself was nowhere in sight, but this was her pushcart here, laden with its miscellany of small articles like the notion counter of a department store. He picked up a cheap, gaudy, coloured kerchief and pretended to examine it. At the next cart was the old Italian whom he, Jimmy Dale, as smiling you then, had accosted three days before, when, as now, he had been in search of Mother Margot. "'How much?' he demanded, holding up the kerchief. The Italian shrugged his shoulders. "'Wait a minute,' he said. "'She just gone at the telephone. She come a right back.' Jimmy Dale put down the kerchief. "'I don't want it bad enough to wait.' he said indifferently, and drew back into the throng on the sidewalk. But the next instant he had sidled out of the crowd again into a dark, narrow, and dirty little alleyway that made the sight of an equally dirty and uninviting second-hand shop on whose unwashed window painted letters that had once been white, announced that its proprietor was one Antonio Mezzo. The telephone. Luck. He felt his pulses quicken. There were only two persons who ever called Mother Margot to this telephone here, himself and the Phantom. His fingers had crept to a pocket in the leather girdle. They came out with his mask. He slipped it quickly over his face. Mother Margot would have news tonight, then. He was at the side door now. It was slightly ajar, and, yes, he could just catch the old hag's miserable jargon, the shrill, complaining voice muffled, of course, by the telephone booth itself that stood just within, beside the door. "'I can't hear yous. The buzzin's got me feast.' Jimmy Dale's lips straightened suddenly. It wasn't Mother Margot he wanted to hear. Why trust her? He had never caught her at the phone before. He could make her talk, but he had no guarantee that it would be the whole truth. He pushed the door open softly and stepped inside. There was a dim light coming from a blackened, nearly burned out incandescent that dangled from the ceiling the back room here littered with old junk and broken furniture was cut off from the front by a closed door being inside the booth she had not seen him she was still reiterating the fact that she could not hear distinctly jimmie dale crept a step forward another then with a swift movement he jerked the door of the booth open and leaning forward clapped his hand firmly over the mouthpiece of the telephone there was a startled cry from the old hag, as she shrank back. The side of the booth creaked with her weight. "'My God!' she whispered wildly. "'The, the grey seal!' "'Yes,' said Jimmy Dale grimly. "'Give me that receiver. Quick! You answer as I tell you.' He put the receiver to his ear. "'What's the matter?' demanded a voice imperatively. "'What's that noise?' "'Tell him it's Mezzo moving some furniture about,' ordered Jimmy Dale swiftly. He took his hand from the transmitter. "'It's the old Dago shoving some of his junk around,' said Mother Margot into the phone. Again Jimmy Dale's hand closed over the transmitter. "'All right,' snapped the voice. "'Can you hear now?' "'Tell him you can hear now,' breathed Jimmy Dale. "'Sure,' obeyed Mother Margot. "'Sure, I guess you's now.' "'Go to the crescent as I told you then,' said the voice, "'and give Curly this message. "'The black box. "'Sadie Foy's at eleven o'clock. "'Understand?' 
Jimmy Dale nudged Mother Margot significantly as he nodded his head affirmatively, and again removed his hand from the phone. Sure, said Mother Margot. Hurry, said the voice curtly. The receiver at the other end of the wire was hung up. Let's get out of here, said Jimmy Dale coolly. Mother Margot stumbled out of the booth. She was twisting her hands together, casting frightened, hurried glances toward the closed door that led into the second-hand shop in front, glancing furtively, too, at Jimmy Dale from under her hooded shawl. "'My God!' she mumbled thickly. "'My God!' Outside in the lane, the side door closed, Jimmy Dale drew the old woman against the wall of the building, and for a moment stood staring at her speculatively in the darkness. Suddenly she reached out and clawed at his sleeve. "'What she's going to do?' she whispered wildly. "'My God! The Grey Seal! What she's going to do?' Jimmy Dale ignored her question. He spoke sharply. "'So Curly down at the Crescent Saloon is one of the gang too, is he?' he demanded. "'No, he ain't!' she shook her head vehemently. "'Not the way yous means, he ain't!' "'I suppose that is why a message is sent to him, then?' observed Jimmy Dale caustically. "'He gets lot of em, she said quickly. "'But he don't know what any of em means, and he don't know where any of em goes to. I watched him once. Someone calls him up on the phone, and he just says the message over, that's all.' "'Quite so,' said Jimmy Dale softly. "'But in that case, did it ever strike you that the voice, as you call him, would save quite a little time to say nothing of making you trudge around town by phoning Curly direct?' Mother Margot was twisting her hands again. "'Yous don't believe me!' she cried out hoarsely. "'Yous think I'm stringing yous. I ain't. Honest to God, I ain't. I'm handing yous the straight goods. That's why no one gets next to the voice, unless he wants em to. The trail's gummed up, see? He don't trust no one. He was getting leery of me. That's why he sent me away, see? There's been a lot of leaks. He sent me away for three days on a fake lay. And when I was away... One of his games gets a hole all bust in it again, and I guess it was used in it. So he's sure it ain't me that's spinning any of the beans. You see, don't yous? Say, for God's sake, you see, don't yous, that I ain't stringing yous? The old hag's voice was full of nervous anxiety. She kept wringing her hands together. Jimmy Dale nodded. She was undoubtedly telling the truth. He could quite understand now why she'd been away, and could understand, perhaps better than she could, the phantom's dire need of looking to his fences. "'But the phone?' he suggested. "'Well, that's the answer, ain't it?' she said. "'It ain't so much of a trick to trace a telephone call, is it? Not if the dicks want to do it. That's why he don't telephone that sort of stuff nowhere except here, and not to nobody except me. And, and if he was wise to what happened in there just now, he'd... he'd... My God, he's nobody do. Say, yous ain't going to stop me, are yous?' You're going to tell me what that message is, ain't yous, and let me put it across? She was clawing pitifully, frantically, at Jimmy Dale's sleeve again. If yous don't, and I don't give Curly that message, they'll kill me. Maybe yous got away with it, being the dago bumping furniture that made the row in the booth. But if the message don't go, that don't go neither, and, and they'll slip me throat. Oh, for God's sake, yous knows that. That's what they'll do. It was literally true. The failure of Mother Margot to deliver the message was exactly equivalent to her death sentence. Jimmie Dale's lips were a straight line. 
There was no quibbling on that point. The Phantom's trade was murder. He would strike without an instant's hesitation at the slightest indication that the old hag had played him false. On the other hand, if he, Jimmy Dale, allowed Mother Margot to deliver the message, he delivered himself without reservation into her hands, either that or go back home to bed and leave Sadie Foy's alone. But again, if the message were delivered, it promised almost to a certainty that at Sadie Foy's he would pick up the trail that he had come out tonight to find. The question saloon and curly did not interest him. That was only a relaying station. The rendezvous was at Sadie Foy's. Suppose he refused to give Mother Margot the message? Would it stop the projected devilry that was obviously afoot? And on that basis alone ought he to refuse? If he did, it would cost the woman her life. There was no supposition about that. That was fact. He couldn't do that, could he? And yet, since he must then assume the moral responsibility, and if for no other reason than that, play a hand at Sadie Foy's, his own life very probably hung on whether Mother Margot would keep faith with him or not. "'They'll kill me!' Mother Margot whispered hoarsely. She pulled at his sleeve, clung to it. She was rocking queerly on her feet. "'Yes,' said Jimmy Dale calmly. "'They'd kill you, and they would equally kill me if, once out of my sight, you added to the message the information that I was in this game again tonight. And so you see, it's a case of you being killed to a certainty, with a chance, depending on you, of the same thing happening to me.' He smiled suddenly, whimsically. "'I haven't very much choice, have I? I can't send you to your death. The message? Oh, yes, it's this. The black box. Sadie Foy's at eleven o'clock, that's all.' She drew in her breath suddenly. "'My God! Use are right!' she said in a low, catchy way. "'I get use. Yous are going to be at Sadie Foy's, and you're taking the chance of me splitting on yous. Well, yous needn't worry, and I'll tell yous why. I ain't forgot the night at Peddler Joe's. Yous made me go there, I knows. But yous risked your life to get me out of it, and I ain't forgot. I've wondered about that, said Jimmy Dale, half to himself. Then, briskly, do you know anything about this black box or what the message means? She shook her head. Do you know where Bunty Myers is? Again she shook her head. "'I ain't heard anything for three days, until in there tonight,' she said earnestly. "'I only just got back.' "'All right,' said Jimmy Dale, quietly. "'You'd better go now. And hurry, in case there's a check on the time when you should be at Curly's.' She hesitated an instant. Then she brushed a hand quickly across her eyes. "'My God! Yours are white,' she said again, huskily and turned, and shuffled hurriedly down the alleyway toward the street. Jimmy Dale watched her until she had disappeared. "'Perhaps,' said Jimmy Dale, grimly, "'and perhaps I am a fool.'" End of chapter 22「
rolled rapidly along. He was frowning heavily. He did not like this. He did not like having Benson along like this. Not because Benson could not be trusted to the uttermost, but for Benson's own sake. There wasn't much risk for Benson, of course. In fact, there wasn't any, as far as he could see. But he would have felt easier in his mind had he been alone. They were going ostensibly now to the Silver Dragon, a famous resort of slumming parties in Chinatown, and Benson would park outside where other cars were parked and simply wait. But for all that, there was... He shrugged his shoulders. What else could he do? His side was behaving very nicely so far, better than he had hoped for, in effect. But that condition was dependent, he knew very well, on saving himself all he could. That was why, for example, he had not gone to the sanctuary, and, as Smarlinghue then, gone alone to Sadie Foy's. There would have been time, ample time, but he wasn't fit to play the role of Smarlinghue tonight. He dismissed the subject from his mind. He had done what had seemed the wisest and best thing. The rest was in the lap of the gods. He began a little mental calculation as he took out his watch. It was twenty minutes to eleven now. It was roughly about ten minutes ago when Mother Margot had started on her errand. She should be at Curly's by now. That left a leeway of twenty minutes for somebody to telephone Curly and, presumably, make the rendezvous at Sadie Foy's at eleven o'clock. Jimmy Dale replaced the watch in his pocket and stared again at the back of Benson's head. The black box, Sadie Foy's. He shook his head. The combination meant nothing to him, of course. But Sadie Foy herself was quite a different matter. In Chinatown, Sadie Foy was a celebrity, a very shady and notorious celebrity. She was seldom sober. She was a white woman, old now, who had married a Chinaman. But Charlie Foy, her husband, had perished in a tongue feud, that was many years ago. Since then, she had lived in a little rat-hole of a place as dissolute as herself, a few blocks from Chatham Square, supported, according to the police, by a pension from the Tong, for which her lamented Charlie Foy had given up his life. A queer smile flickered across Jimmy Dale's lips. As Larry the Bat in the days of old, as Smarlinghue of today, he was in this particular very much better informed than the police. There was no question whatever about the pension, but the pension was not based on purely philanthropic motives, or due to a deep-seated sorrow for Charlie Foy's untimely and violent decease. It satisfied the police. Actually, Sadie Foy drove a lively trade in bulk opium, or in anything else of an illicit character that promised her a profit. The bulk opium accounted for the pension, an innate evilness and cunning accounted for her general depravity. It was a choice place for a rendezvous of any questionable sort, or for any purpose. The minutes passed as the car sped along. Jimmy Dale half closed his eyes. Sadie Foy, or for that matter her iniquities, meant nothing. It was the trail now that so obviously led to Sadie Foy's door. The Phantom was interested in something at Sadie Foy's at eleven o'clock. Would the trail broaden or break? What did the night hold? A final reckoning with the phantom? Freedom for her? If she still lived? Success? Partial or whole? Failure? What? The car slowed and stopped. Jimmie Dale stepped to the sidewalk. We'll raise the limit a little this time, Benson, he said. Wait an hour. Jimmie Dale mounted the steps of the garishly lighted restaurant before which the car had stopped and passed inside.
The place was a riot of noise, the clatter of dishes, laughter, song, the never-ceasing hum of numberless voices from numberless tables where the diners sat. He walked leisurely from room to room, making for the rear of the establishment, and here nonchalantly walked out into the cross-street behind. The Silver Dragon was blessed with two entrances. And now Jimmy Dale quickened his step. It was in a narrow, twisting, ill-lighted little street in the heart of Chinatown. Shuttered windows threw out stealthy gleams of light from their interstices. Scuffling figures sidled by him. He passed a small frame house, mouldy and in decay, weather-streaked, which paint had not touched in years. It was in complete darkness, not a light showed from it anywhere. And then, in another minute, he had slipped into the adjacent lane, and in still another was creeping cautiously across a filthy backyard, with the rear of the small house that was mouldy and in decay looming up before him. This was Sadie Foy's. His eyes narrowed now a little grimly. It was black here all around him, but the house itself was not quite so dark at the rear as it had been in front. From a lower window just ahead of him, little undulating threads of light seeped out from behind the edges of a drawn shade. It was the air did that, of course, made the shade sway slightly. Therefore, the window must be open. Voices, in what seemed like low, guttural undertones, began to reach him. He stole cautiously forward. There was refuse in the yard, and it was pitch black. It was not easy to assure silence even from step to step. A tin can became an object of dire menace. A minute, two, passed, and then Jimmy Dale, from a stooping position, stood upright. His head was just on a level with the window sill. He could hear now distinctly. "'Well, we're getting fed up waiting,' said a silky voice. "'It's eleven o'clock, and we've been patient for about a couple of hours. If yous ain't coming across nice and pleasant, maybe we can help your memory a little more the other way.' Sadie's got everything locked up nice for the night in front, and nobody'll disturb us. Ain't you, Sadie? Jimmie Dale's dark eyes lighted with a sudden gleam. He could see little, scarcely more than a group of shadows on the shade, but he had recognized the purring voice. The trail was here. It was the kitten's voice, and with the kitten at work, hand in glove with him somewhere should be the Phantom and Bunty Myers. If the light breeze would only stir that shade a little more, just half an inch. A woman cackled hoarsely. Sure, I'll take care of that. Don't use worry. Yeah? It was the kitten's voice again. We've let yous off easy so far, but we're getting fed up. I ask yous for the last time before yous gets hurt some more. Where's the black box? Your brother didn't take it up the river with him, and the mob of boobs yous played for suckers ain't got it. "'cause they're mostly on the street now with the kids, "'picking up their free lunches in the gutters. "'And it wasn't left around loose in the crib "'when your sweet little Banco Santos was pinched. "'And you've been hiding all the time. "'So where is it?' "'There was no answer. "'In the silence, Jimmy Dale, almost involuntarily, startled, "'had drawn back a little. "'The Banco Santos. "'He did not need to see in there.' He knew what the black box was now. The trial was scarcely a week old. The papers had been full of it. Two brothers, two Portuguese, Georges and Manuel Santos, had run a private bank, garnering in the savings of, for the most part, the poorer element among the foreign class, the tenement dwellers, 
They had played the game craftily, with vicious patience, for nearly two years, piling up the savings of the poor. Only the final coup had been disrupted a little by a sudden suspicion that had arisen in the minds of the authorities. And one evening, as the latter had descended on the place, the two brothers had decamped by the back window, one of them carrying under his arm a black oblong security box. One of the brothers, as likewise the black box, had not been seen or heard of since. The other brother, Georges, had been caught, and only a few days ago had started to serve a fifteen-year sentence in Sing Sing. The missing funds were estimated at between twenty-five and thirty thousand dollars. The kitten purred again. Ain't it too bad he's lost his voice as well as his memory? And we ain't done hardly anything but be civil to him, since we runs into him back there in Mickey the Cobbler's dump. Maybe he's sore cause we didn't go right up and shake hands with him then. But you see, we was just setting round having a drink, and thought maybe we'd had one too many and was seeing things when the cellar door opens, and one of these guys here says he'll bet a million bucks that it was Manuel Santos, and by the time we gets our breaths back, he slipped out. We hadn't never travelled together none of us before, but this looked like we all had tickets for the same place. So we follows him, and over he sneaks to Sadie's here to buy some coke, and we trails in, and sure enough, when we get a real good look at him, Steenie's right, and it's Manuel Santos. Only he ain't got the black box that they talked about in the papers with him. He laughed a little, low, viciously. I'm sick of asking him. Yous ask him, Steenie, same as yous did before, only a little harder. There was a sudden blurred movement of the figures on the shade, a sudden low, throttled cry of pain and fear. Jimmie Dale's fingers touched the lower edge of the shade. They were not occupied in there with the window now, and it might even have been but stirring of the night breeze. The shade swayed gently inward an inch, two, and floated almost imperceptibly back into place again. Jimmie Dale's face was hard and strained. It was not difficult to pick out Manuel Santos from the group. The man's hands were tied, and he drooped over the table as though in a half swoon. His face was battered ferociously, and blood trickled in two or three little streams from his cheeks. Behind him stood the kitten. In a corner, Sadie Foy cackled applause and rubbed skinny hands together joyously. There were four other men, drags, rats, jacks of all trades in the underworld. He knew three of them by name, Steenie Klotz, Rat Jack, the Bummer. Nice names, but in the underworld the monikers were apt. There came the sound of a blow, another, and another, and then a cry again. A voice gasped out weakly. Stop! For God's sake, stop! I, I'll tell. Blamed if yous ain't a great memory worker, Steenie, purred the kitten's voice. He's going to tell. Well, Manuel, where is it? it it's at the camp. The man's words came painfully. Where's that? demanded the kitten. It's on the sound. It's just this side of the Martin Holmes place. Jimmie Dale's brows contracted suddenly. The Martin Holmes had nothing to do with this, of course, but he remembered now. It's been that summer shack you and your brother had, inquired the kitten softly. Yes, the man answered. 
Nix on that, the kitten jeered suddenly. The bulls lived there for about two weeks, pawing it over. Don't you try any of that stuff, my bucko. If it had been in the house, they'd have found it. I heard they even pulled the floors up. Say, Steenie, you'd better try again. No, no, Manuel Santos' voice rose shrilly. It's true. I'm telling you the truth. The police could never find it, but it's there. All right, said the kitten evenly. Tell us about it, then. It ain't really in the house. It, it's outside the attic window. The words came slowly, in a mumbling sort of way. It looks as though the eaves were all boarded in around the house, but you can move one of them above the window. There, there's only one window. It, it's there. There was a low, muttered chorus of exultant oaths, and then the kitten's voice. That sounds good enough to be true. He was purring again. I'll get a closed car, and we'll hike along out there. And you'll come too, Manuel, so's there won't be no tricks. You ain't such a fool after all, Manuel. A little trip to South America where you'll be out of everybody's road, and a lot safer yourself than you have been for the last six weeks, trying to hide yourself away. It's better than taking a last ride in a wooden box where you can't look at the scenery. Yous are among friends, Manuel, if yous only knew it. There's some... Jimmy Dale was retreating from the window. A moment more, and he'd gained the street, and hurrying now, returning by the same way he'd come, he reached his car in front of the Silver Dragon. Benson, he said quietly, we seem fated to make quite a night of it. Off and on, you've driven me a number of times to Mr. Martin Holmes' summer residence out on the Sound. I know it's closed now for the season, but do you remember just exactly where it is? Perfectly, sir, said Benson. Good, nodded Jimmy Dale. Drive there now, that is to within, say, half a mile this side of the place. If I remember correctly, it's quite thickly wooded there. I leave it entirely to you to find a convenient spot in about that neighborhood to run the car off the road and park it where it will not be seen. Benson stared, a hesitant, anxious expression creeping into his face. Jimmy Dale smiled. I'm still quite all right, Benson, he said. "'Yes, sir,' said Benson mechanically. "'And by the way,' Jimmy Dale paused in the act of stepping into the car, "'I might say that I am in a very great hurry, Benson.' "'Yes, sir,' said Benson heavily. For a moment, as he settled back on the cushions and the car started forward, the smile held on Jimmy Dale's lips. Benson, like Jason, was comparable to a hen with her chick. Benson, at this precise instant, probably— to mix metaphors, was inwardly wriggling like an eel. He was probably debating with himself whether he should not drive directly home, and there, by brute force if necessary, with the assistance of Jason, put him, Jimmy Dale, back to bed again, even if he got fired for it. Benson, however, in the last analysis, wouldn't do anything of the kind. He would play the game. The smile faded now from Jimmy Dale's lips, and a puzzled, anxious look settled on his face, as he dismissed Benson from his mind. He had acted quickly back there at Sadie Foy's because he had realized that there was no time to lose, and though even then he had realized too that the pieces of the puzzle seemed somehow strangely mismated, he had also realized that the final act in any case would be played out where he was going now, at the Santos camp. 
Further, there was the moral responsibility to save that money, and nothing would have induced him to shift that responsibility to, say, the police, when instinctively he sensed, as he did, that the Phantom had still a card to play, a card that also must be played out at the same place. But what was that card? If it were only the kitten who was involved, he could pick up the kitten's trail again at the Santos camp. But it was more than the kitten that he wanted, more than the kitten that he still hoped for, and in which hope intuition told him he was justified. He wanted the Phantom, or Bunty Myers. He had time now to solve the puzzle, if he could. But the pieces, on closer examination, only seemed the more mismated. They contradicted even the sense of intuition that was so strong upon him. Where was the Phantom's hand in this? The kitten? Well, then, why that message? Sadie Foy's at eleven o'clock. The kitten had said himself he had been there long before eleven. The kitten was therefore already at Sadie Foy's when the message was delivered to Curley at the Crescent Saloon. And then again, the four men who were with the kitten, he was absolutely certain, had no intimate connection with the phantom. They were not the kind the phantom gathered around him. They were simply Apaches, buzzards of the underworld, mentally the lowest type of criminal, whose only knowledge of finesse was embodied in the use of a blackjack, a knife, or a revolver. They did not belong. Suppose, then, they had been hired for this special occasion. In that case, the kitten was already fully equipped to carry through the night's work. Why, then, the message? The miles flew by. The minutes passed into quarter hours. They had long since been out on a country road. What did it mean? Jimmy Dale, save that at long intervals he subconsciously eased his position, sat motionless, staring introspectively at the window. What did it mean? And then suddenly Jimmy Dale sat erect. He had it. It had come like a flash. It dovetailed. It fitted in its minutest parts. It postulated only that the kitten had a means of ready communication with his unhallowed master, the phantom, which in itself was axiomatic. The kitten had haphazardly been in the company of the four Apaches when one of the four, this teeny, had recognized the fugitive, Manuel Santos. It was a find worth thirty thousand dollars which the kitten did not propose the other four should share. It was very simple. The kitten had taken the leadership, and in the early stages at Sadie Foy's had undoubtedly gone out on some excuse and sent the phantom word of what was afoot, stating probably that he was sure they could make Manuel Santos talk, and if so, he would somehow stall on any move being made until the phantom had time to act, setting that time at eleven o'clock. Obviously, then, Someone would be on hand at that time to receive from the kitten the information as to where the black box was hidden, if that information had been obtained, and the someone would then arrive first at the hiding place, while the kitten and the four thugs would arrive later, only to find a rifled nest. And the kitten would be secure from any complicity in the eyes of the four thugs, wherein the kitten was very wise. Jimmy Dale stooped suddenly forward and picked up the speaking tube. He wasn't racing any more than against the kitten, on whom he had a known start. He was racing against someone else, someone who would race like mad so as to keep the kitten in countenance and not force his stalling to become apparent through lingering on the road, when his hungry dupes would be urging speed. "'Faster, Benson,' he said sharply. "'All you've got the rest of the way.' He leaned back in his seat again. It was clear enough now. But who was this someone?' It wasn't the phantom himself, for the phantom had sent the message. 
Who, then, was the Phantom's delegate? Jimmie Dale's lips drooped curiously into grim little lines formed at the corners of his mouth. It was more likely than anyone else to be the man he had started out to find, Bunty Myers. He frowned quickly. Had he made a mistake? Should he have remained at Sadie Foy's? This delegate must have been there somewhere at eleven, when the kitten was going out again with the excuse of getting a closed car. And then he shook his head impatiently. Perhaps. If he had known what he was so sure of now, he might have acted differently. Perhaps not. This, after all, was the surer way, both of finding that delegate and securing possession of the black box. The car was eating up the miles now, keeping check almost with the minutes as they passed. He ran his hand through his hair. Doggy dog. It was dirty, miserable work all the way through, beginning with Manuel Santos, who was perhaps the most despicable of the lot. His hands clenched suddenly. If nothing else came of it, getting that money back to those to whom it meant their all was worth whatever it might cost him tonight. Thirty thousand dollars. There was something fiendish, damnable, in the vicious premeditation, the vicious patience with which the two Portuguese had worked. He remembered, in the account of the trial, it had come out in evidence that the authorities had not been lax. Always on demand, securities in the shape of bonds had been produced to make the balances. Of course. And of a sudden, those bonds had been transferred into cash, and, presto, the squalid little bank was no more. He smiled grimly. It was probably the steady demand for so many bills of large denominations during the two or three days prior to the end that had first aroused the suspicions of the authorities, and— The car was slowing down and now it jolted over rough ground. A branch slapped smartly against the windowpane. The headlights, streaming out, threw tree trunks into spectral relief against a background of utter blackness. And then the headlights went off, and the car stopped. Jimmie Dale stepped out. "'You're sure of the place, Benson, that you're hidden from the road?' he asked crisply. "'Yes, sir,' Benson answered. "'Quite sure, sir.' "'Very well,' said Jimmie Dale. "'Keep your lights off.' Wait for me, and don't leave the car under any circumstances. He sensed a protest anent himself rising to Benson's lips, and he turned quickly away. I'll be back in a few minutes, Benson, he said. End of chapter 23「Chapter 24 of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. The Black Box Jimmie Dale moved forward through the trees. It could not be far, not more than three or four hundred yards, for the Santos house lay between himself and the Martin Holmes estate. That was why he had told Benson to stop half a mile this side of the latter place. The general direction, he knew, was a diagonal one, toward the Martin Holmes residence and toward the shore, away from the road. He smiled a little queerly to himself as he went along. He remembered that during a weekend visit to Holmes a year or so ago, the latter had expressed his annoyance at what he had called an unsightly shack that two Portuguese had put up on the beach close to his place. He, Jimmy Dale, had not been very much interested then. He was vitally interested in that so-called shack now. He frowned suddenly. He had been making fair progress and should have reached his destination by now, but, instead, he was still in the woods and the ground was growing wet and soggy underfoot. He edged off in the direction of the shore. 
The house was at the water's edge, Holmes had said, and went on for another hundred yards. It grew worse. He could hear now the lapping of the waves. The trees grew fewer and began to be replaced by a reedy growth. And then, of a sudden, Jimmie Dale halted. A glimmer of moonlight flickered on water and waving marsh grass. It was impassable. It reached out into the sound itself. It was disaster. He felt his face whiten. He must already have been ten minutes on the way, and ten minutes was the utmost limit of margin he had any right to count upon. Ten minutes? It was far worse than that. It would take that much more to retrace his steps and circle around the other way before he could get started again. He gnawed at his lips now as he turned and began to run. It was almost certain disaster. Disaster to the moral responsibility he had assumed. Disaster to the hope he had cherished that tonight... He stumbled. He could not be careful of his footing now. Defeat, yes, perhaps, but he would not accept it. He ran doggedly. Again he stumbled, and again. And now he winced with pain. This hurt his side brutally. It wasn't like riding on the cushions of a luxurious limousine, or even of walking, when no unusual effort was required. He went on. His breath came hard. He swept beads of moisture away from his forehead. And then once he reeled. It was hours, wasn't it, since he had started over again? There wasn't much chance, one perhaps in a thousand, not that much. His jaws clamped hard together. He was making a mess of it with that cursed side, and— Jimmie Dale came suddenly out of the edge of the woods. Well, at least this was better. Fifty yards away, across a clearing, a house loomed shadowy out of the darkness. He listened intently. There was no sound. He darted silently across the clearing and gained the house. It was a small place, so close to the shore that, as he crept now noiselessly up the steps of a veranda that apparently ran all around the house, he could make out a little wharf and what looked like an old neglected boat drawn up on the beach. Certainly, there was no mistaking the house, for there was no other of this description he knew in the neighborhood. A picklock came from a pocket in the leather girdle, and with it again the black silk mask. A moment more, and Jimmy Dale stood inside the house. And now he listened again, straining his ears for the slightest sound. Nothing. His face was white and haggard. There was only one answer, of course. The phantom's delegate had been and gone. There had been time enough, so much in despair that even the kitten was due now. He took out a flashlight and circled it around him. The place was crude, to a certain extent unfinished, exactly what Manuel Santos himself had called it, a camp. It seemed to be divided into several rooms by thin, unpainted partitions. Here, at his right, steps led upward. Well, he had come this far, and even if the chances now were all against him, he was still going up there. But he had to think of the kitten now, the possibility of being trapped himself by the kitten and his thugs. There was time enough now to take the precaution of arming himself with a knowledge of the general plan of the place. He stepped hurriedly through the several rooms that made the death of the house. He nodded in quick understanding. The camp was of uniform design. One took his choice as to which was the rear and which was the front. Here, where he stood now, a door opened on the veranda, and here, too, a rough staircase led to the upper story, or attic, as Manuel Santos had called it, well, the attic now, that window. He went quickly up the stairs. At the top, his flashlight disclosed a broad landing and a closed door. 
The door was unlocked, and he stepped forward over its threshold. The flashlight circled the interior. Again he nodded. It was an attic, nothing more or less, without partitions, that reached from one end of the house to the other. There was a single window, halfway down one side, the right-hand side from where he stood now, facing the sound. He was at the window now. He opened it and stood up on the sill. And suddenly, poised there, he remained motionless. From the direction of the road he thought he had caught the sound of a motor. He was gone now. Perhaps he had been mistaken. The road was, as nearly as he could calculate it, a good hundred and fifty yards back from the water. He felt swiftly up above his head, outside the window. He did not dare use the flashlight now. Whether he was mistaken about the motor or not, the kitten was already due, and the light would show a long way through the darkness. And besides, there was partial moonlight, and he could see a little. His fingers were feeling, searching, prying over the rough boarding. It was very ingenious, this. The eaves boarded in to meet the wall of the house. Only he could not find any section of it that seemed at all loose or movable. It would be craftily done, of course. He would hardly expect anything else, but... It was strange. Very strange. The kitten had been able to pass on no more detailed information about this than he, Jimmy Dale, had overheard, and if he, Jimmy Dale, could not open it, how could the kitten's confederate have done so? Just luck? A stumbling on the trick of it? It was rather strange. Jimmy Dale became motionless again, intent, alert. There could be no question about it now. There was the unmistakable crunch of several footsteps approaching the house from the direction of the road. The kitten was coming. In a flash, Jimmy Dale reached into the leather girdle, and a powerful little blued-steel Jimmy was in his hand. It was very strange, so strange that he meant to see inside there, kitten or no kitten. The Jimmy ripped into a board above his head and pried one end of it loose. He felt quickly inside. It was naturally hollow here, and he reached in as far as he could, feeling in both directions. Nothing. He tore the board completely away now, and moving a little along the sill, reached in from the other end. It was here! He was wrenching out an oblong-shaped black metal box of the style generally used in the safe deposit folds. It was here! His brain seemed stunned for a moment. He did not understand. He could not understand. Except that he had been wrong. Wrong in his deduction from that scene at Sadie Foy's. Wrong in his theory of the meaning of that message. And yet... It had been so logical, so surely the truth, and yet, just as logically now, he was forced to the conclusion that he had been wrong. There had seemed, still seemed, to be no other possible explanation of that message, and yet, and yet he must have been wrong. Nobody, no phantom's delegate, had been here, and the kitten himself was coming now, because those were the footsteps of four or five men, perhaps the he pried the box itself hurriedly open. No, the contents had not been taken and the box left. The faint light disclosed package after package of banknotes. The crunch of footsteps came again, still nearer to the house. Jim O'Dale lowered himself from the sill and, carrying the box, retreated quickly across the attic to the door opposite to that by which he had entered, the door that faced the sound. He opened it silently, stepped out on the landing, and the next instant crouched quickly back in the angle between the door jamb and the wall, on the side of the jamb away from the stairs. Too late. He had not thought they were so near. There was a footstep below. One of them was coming up this way, was even on the stairs now. He could not see, he could only hear. His automatic swung forward. Someone was close to him now. 
His jaws clamped. No, he had not been seen either. The footstep passed the threshold of the door, entered the attic, and was crossing it now in the direction of the window. And now, through the open door, Jimmie Dale could make out a figure, little more than a shadowy outline, in the faint ray of moonlight from the window. And then Jimmie Dale hung there, riveted to the spot. It was quick, quick as the winking of an eye. The figure, at the window now, halted abruptly and swung sharply around to face the opposite doorway. And, coincidentally, it seemed, the door opened, and as a flashlight streamed in and fell full upon the figure, and Jimmie Dale saw the man's face, there was a chorus of savage oaths, and almost simultaneously the flash and roar of a revolver shot, and the figure turned and ran toward the doorway near which Jimmie Dale stood. It was Bunty Myers. A voice screamed out in rage. "'Blast you, kitten! If you hadn't bumped against my arm, I'd have got him, and got him good!' Jimmie Dale's face was set, drawn, rigid, a queer tightness about the corner of his lips. He'd been right, a thousand times right. It was not he who had been wrong, nor his intuition, nor his logic at fault. It was Bunty Myers who had been wrong. Something had gone wrong with the man's plans. Something had... A fusillade of shots poured into the room after the flying figure. Bunty Myers stumbled, recovered himself, came on again, staggered through the doorway, and stumbled again this time dropping to the floor. And then Jimmy Dale was at work. He slammed the door shut, and snatching out his picklock, locked it. Bunty Myers. He wanted Bunty Myers. This was the man he had set out to find tonight, and— No, it wasn't only that. Thank God he wasn't quite so raw as that. Those thugs in there, those Apaches, would kill the man like a dog, as they'd already tried to do, for interfering with their meat. And the more so, now that they would find that meat gone— the kitten couldn't stop them without giving himself away. It wasn't Bunty Myers, it was a man's life now, if the man were not already too far gone. He held the box under his left arm as he bent forward to the huddled form on the floor. Quick, he whispered. Put your arm around my neck. Do you hear? Make an effort. It's your only chance. The man, with Jimmy Dale's assistance, lurched to his feet. They staggered, half fell down the stairs together. Bunty Myers was mumbling almost incoherently. I had a breakdown on the way. Out, kitten. Damn fool, kitten. Why couldn't you hold back, eh? Only a, a little late. Use. A sweat of agony was standing out on Jimmy Dale's forehead. He was half carrying the man. His side was torturing him. My God, whispered Jimmy Dale between drawn lips. Behind, upstairs, they were smashing at the locked door. They would either have to break it down or come around the other way through the house. It was worth a couple of minutes' start, and there was the boat there now on the shore just a few yards away. He plunged on, staggering. Bunty Myers had become almost a dead weight. Well, he couldn't leave the man to be killed, could he? The man kept muttering now, muttering, muttering. Up and down, see. Hell of a note. Up and down. Up and down. Bunty Myers collapsed a limp heap in the bottom of the boat. Jimmy Dale shoved it off and jumped in. There were no oars save a broken one. He seized it and began to paddle. Footsteps pounded on the veranda, racing around the house. A yell went up. There he is! There he is! In the boat! There was the crash and flame spurt of shots, the spat of lead on the water. Jimmy Dale threw himself flat in the boat beside Bunty Myers. With the initial push and the few strokes he had managed, the boat was quite a little distance from the shore, and what breeze there was 
was carrying it still farther out and also in the direction of the marshy tract through which he had first tried to reach the house. They could not, therefore, follow him along the shore. A medley of voices from the shore, punctuated by oaths, reached him. "'Get a boat! There'll be one up at that swell ranch, even if it's closed for the summer. Sure, bust the boathouse in. Beat it, quick! He's good and hurt, and he won't get far. He was winged upstairs in the attic when he fell.' Jimmy Dale wrenched his flask from his pocket. They had only seen one man, of course. His head was swimming crazily. He gulped down some brandy, and then felt for Bunty Myers' lips. "'Drink this,' he said hoarsely. The liquor gurgled queerly. He felt it run down the man's chin. But Bunty Myers must have swallowed some of it, for he began to mutter again, obviously in delirium now. "'Up and down, I tell yous,' mumbled Bunty Myers. "'It's honest to God's truth.' she don't know it cause it's in the next house it goes up and down i tell you i saw it up and his voice trailed off what did the man mean jimmie dale swept his hand across his eyes it encountered his mask he pulled it off and put it in his pocket they were both delirious weren't they he and bunty myers this was the man he had come to find and from whose lips he had sworn he would tear the phantom's secret and all the man did was to croak up and down up and down why didn't he say see so marjorie daw he gulped down another mouthful of brandy yes that was better now he raised his head the shore was indistinct not so much through distance but because what little moonlight there had been was gone now under a cloud they would have a boat after him pretty soon he must paddle now risk a shot he wouldn't be very distinct either he dipped in the broken oar it brought a moan of agony from his lips. The shots he had invited from the shore came and missed. He must paddle, if it tore his side to pieces. Only one man in the boat, that's what they thought. Well then, why not? He could easily save himself, drop overboard and swim ashore somewhere in the marshy tract. He had strength enough for that. They'd find the boat and find a man in it. But there was some reason why he couldn't do that. He shook his head fiercely as though to clear his brain. Yes, of course, he couldn't leave that huddled figure there at his feet to be killed, could he? So it would have to be a fight, unless he could evade them in the darkness, and, and there wasn't much chance of that. He listened. That sounded like a boat coming from somewhere far behind now. But there weren't any more shots from the shore. Naturally, he must be opposite the marsh now, and they couldn't follow him any more on the land. He couldn't leave the man to be killed, and that's what they do, kill the man. The kitten couldn't prevent it without the others understanding the whole game and turning on the kitten, too. The kitten had done all he could when he'd bumped against the arm of the man who had fired that first shot. Funny that Bunty Myers should be here. No, it was clear, quite clear. Bunty Myers had started out all right for the box, but a breakdown had made him late, so late that he... A shout came from the shore behind. It was answered from the water. There was no further question but that they had secured a boat, though it was still a good way off. His broken oar suddenly touched bottom as he made a stroke. It wasn't the shore. It was just shallow water here, fronting the marshland. Well, it didn't matter. He couldn't paddle much more, and not fast enough anyway to escape them, nor run fast enough with a wounded man, even if he were ashore, to get away from them. He laughed a little harshly. It was a case of fight for it, then. Perhaps Bunty Myers might be roused, propped up against a seat to help. 
It would be ironical if Bunty Myers hit the kitten. He stopped paddling and leant forward with his flask once more. Here, quick, take some more of this, he said. There was no answer. The head he lifted slid from his grasp and thudded with a dull, ugly sound against the side of the boat. And for an instant, Jimmie Dale stared at the limp, huddled form. And then, with a low, quick cry, he reached for the other's wrist, searching for the pulse, and then for the man's heartbeat. There was none. He drew his breath in sharply. The man was dead. The splash of oars mingled with the growl and snarl of voices came distinctly now across the water. Bunty Myers was dead. It was queer, strange. It seemed to carry with it some significance beyond the mere fact of death. What was it? He had started out to find Bunty Myers for something or other. His head was swimming miserably again. It had nothing to do with that black box there on the floor of the boat. Nothing to do with... He spurred himself to action. One man in the boat. There need be only one man in the boat now. He looked behind him, straining his eyes through the darkness. He could not see the other boat. Therefore they could not see him. He picked up the black box and slipped over the side. The water could not be very deep since his oar had touched the bottom. No, it was less than waist high. He began to wade as quickly as he could and still avoid making any splash toward the shore. The sounds from the oncoming boat grew louder, the voices more distinct, and then Jimmy Dale, reeling a little, stepped from the water's edge and began to make his way silently through the woods. He knew the way. There was no danger of losing it. He was on the same side of the marshy track that Benson was. He had only to keep straight ahead toward the road, and it wasn't far. Curious how heavy the black box was. He smiled grimly. Back there, they would think Bunty Myers must have let it drop overboard. What else could they think? Tomorrow the police would get it, with the compliments of the Grey Seal. And the Phantom? No, Bunty Myers. His head was swirling again, but his brain seemed to be fighting desperately to tell him that what Bunty Myers had said about up and down and the next house somewhere was something he should understand, because he was to make Bunty Myers tell him something, if Bunty Myers died for it, and he knew very well that Bunty Myers had died. He gnawed at his lips. His head was very bad. Very bad. He couldn't think any more. Not now. Not tonight. But he had no need to think any more now, had he? There was Benson in the car looming up just ahead of him. The rest was for tomorrow. And the tomorrows. The tomorrows. End of chapter 24「Chapter twenty five of Jimmy Dale and the Phantom Clue by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. In the Sanctuary. A door opened and closed softly. A shadow moved in the darkness. Came then the crackle of a match and a gas jet, air choked, wheezing in protest, emitted a thin blue flame, grew yellow, and cast a meagre glow over its immediate surroundings unkempt, disreputable in his ragged, threadbare attire as Smarlinghue, Jimmy Dale stood for an instant, staring around him at the squalid appointments of the place, and then moving abruptly to the far end of the room, flung himself down upon the already crumpled coverings of the dilapidated cot-bed against the wall. This was the sanctuary. 
He half closed his eyes, staring at the asthmatic, stuttering guest yet. Well, it would be in every verity a sanctuary for another hour or so, a retreat where he could strive quietly to bring mental order out of chaos, and yes, physically rest for a little while, until it was time to carry out the plan that he proposed to put into execution before another morning came. Since last night, all through the day, those mumbled words of Bunty Myers, the dying gangster, had been ringing in his ears. They had become an obsession. He could not rid his mind of them, or of the insistently growing intuition that they were the key to the phantom's lair if he could only make head or tail of them. Up and down, I tell yous. She don't know it, cause it's in the next house. It goes up and down, I tell yous. Who was she? He could not actually deduce it logically, but he was nevertheless sure that she was Mother Margot. The voices he had heard in the room, but could not locate, the certainty that the clue, the phantom clue as he came to call it, was to be found in Mother Margot's rooms, was of course the basis for this interpretation, but it was the next house that bothered him. What did that mean? If he were right, and it was Mother Margot who did not know, cause it's in the next house, where was this next house? There was nothing there but another tenement across the narrow areaway. He frowned suddenly, impatiently. His mind was simply beginning to go over again, vainly, ineffectually, what had already gone over a thousand times, it seemed, since last night. He had already made a decision, hours ago. He would know tonight whether he was right or not. He would know before he slept whether Bunty Myers' dying words linked up the phantom's secret with Mother Margot's rooms or not. Tonight, finally, the phantom clue that was, in any case, connected with the old hag's rooms would be a mystery no longer, if he literally had to wreck the place to unearth it. Jimmy Dale nodded grimly to himself. Tonight. In a little while. It was too early yet. Just ten o'clock. His lips tightened. Yes, wreck it. His was a single purpose now, that tonight he would strike with all his might, strike without counting the personal cost, and above all, strike while for once he possessed the certainty that it would not be too late, in the sense that even success in the unearthing of the phantom, and in a final reckoning with the man, might only hold a bitter emptiness, because she, the toxin, the woman he loved, would already have been beyond all aid. There would be no thought of that. He was lighter of heart on that score than he had been for many days. She was alive, yes, and well, and safe. He knew that tonight. The torment, the fear for her safety that, finding no trace of her, he had known yesterday, and for so many yesterdays before, was gone now. She was alive, and so far she was safe. His lips moved silently. Thank God for that. And now he asked only that, whatever the outcome to himself in what he was about to do, she might after tonight be safe for always. He shook his head a little grimly. Suppose instead of success he failed. Too often the phantom had slipped from his grasp, and he was only too well aware that tonight he was almost literally going up against a stacked hand held by the other. Mother Margot had warned him that her rooms were a trap for the grey seal. The toxin had warned him. He had never doubted this, simply because more than once he had ventured into those rooms and emerged unscathed. And though it might well be, as he had argued with himself on his last visit there, that it was now so long ago since the trap had been baited, that the phantom no longer built any hopes upon it 
as a means of snaring his prey. That argument, however well founded, did not apply tonight. He could not very well expect to attack the trap itself and proceed to demolish it without inviting the attention of the trapper, which was indeed his prime intention. A fool? Perhaps. But there was no other way of getting to grips with the phantom, and tonight she was alive and safe, and there might be no tomorrow night. And besides, if the worst happened, he would not go out alone, the phantom would go with him. He was somehow sure of that. It was like a deep-seated consciousness, a strange reassuring certainty. And if that were so, he had no quarrel with the price, whatever it might be. His fingers, fumbling in the pocket of his ragged jacket, found and drew out an envelope. He stared at it for a long time. Hers, the toxins, the first word he had had from her for so many days. His eyes softened. Alive. And he had known so great a fear a fear that had grown day after day into an almost hopeless agony of dread. She who loved him, and had made no effort to communicate with him after he had been wounded that other night, no effort when he knew that under ordinary conditions she would have moved heaven and earth to do so. That was why, last night, in spite of Jason, in spite of his wound, he had tried to pick up the phantom's trail again through Bunty Myers, and in a measure had succeeded. He had found Bunty Myers, but Bunty Myers was dead now. A strange grim light crept into Jimmy Dale's half-closed eyes. The circle had indeed narrowed. Of the phantom satellites, of all those who once had gathered in that back upstairs room of Wally Carrigan's club, there were left now only two, the kitten and Mother Margot. Those two, and somewhere in his hidden lair, the phantom. Well... Tonight, then. He nodded quickly to himself. He was only waiting until it was a little later. He turned impatiently on the cot. Time seemed to drag interminably. The stage was already set. He had warned Mother Margot to keep away from her rooms tonight, to find an alibi for herself. It was a little quixotic, perhaps, a little of added danger to himself. But again, as it had been last night, her life, if things went wrong, might very well pay part of the forfeit and even Mother Margot was entitled to her life. What else could he have done? It was true that, at best, he could consider her but an unwilling sort of ally. But nevertheless, even though it might have been but through fear, she had, he was sure, always played straight with him. And so tonight he could have done no less than to have given her her chance again. Jimmy Dale rose abruptly from the cot, and, with the envelope in his hand, stepped back across the room again to a position under the gas jet. He had found the note here in the usual place behind the movable section of the baseboard when, late that afternoon, after having previously called Mother Margot from her pushcart on Thompson Street to that rather singularly placed telephone in the rear of Antonio Mezzo's shop and had given her her warning, he had come to the sanctuary for the purpose of assuming the role of Smarlinghue and of spending at least a portion of the waiting hours in the underworld's inner circles which were always pregnant with the possibility of affording an additional threat or clue that might lend strength to his intended stroke against the phantom. He read the note again. It was dated that afternoon. Dear philanthropic crook, what have you been thinking? With you wounded, and believing I would be in a position to know of it, and no word from me, it could only have been one of two things. Either I was heartless, or, or what you had feared so greatly had happened. 
it could not be the former, and so I know that in your love you must have been, as I would have been, mad with anxiety. I said I would not write to you or communicate with you until the shadows had all gone out of our lives again. But this afternoon I would indeed be heartless if I did not send you this word. I am well, and I am safe. Through circumstances that I shall not enter into, I did not know that you were wounded until last night, and then, almost coincidentally, I also knew that from last night's activities your wound could not have been serious, and so my anxiety was relieved. Just one word more. Once before, long, long ago, so long ago that it seems now it were in some other age, I wrote you that it was near the end, that I had all but won, that victory was in sight, and, and Jimmy, only disaster came. And so now I hesitate to say anything but just this. Things are going very well. And it may be, Jimmy, oh, I cannot help but say it, only hours before the shadows will have gone forever. Marie. Jimmy Dale replaced the note in his pocket. Somehow he could not bring himself to destroy it, as he had always done before. It had been so long since he had heard from her. It was physical, tangible evidence that she was alive. He swept his hand across his eyes. Those fears of last night that had driven him wounded from his bed. It was as though she had almost read his mind, read the argument he had followed, and from which he had deduced the worst. It was strange, though, that she had not known, if things were going so very well. Circumstances. What circumstances? He began to pace up and down the squalid room. And then, as abruptly as he had left it, he went and flung himself down on the cot again. He was restless. It was not his wound. His wound was all right, and was none the worse for last night's experiences. His sight was sore and stiff, of course, and in that sense caused him a certain discomfort, but otherwise he was quite normal. It was not his wound that caused his restlessness. It was this dragging of time, this waiting for the moment to arrive when he could supplant inaction with activity. Perhaps he would have done better to have remained longer in those various hidden places of the inner circles of the underworld they had visited after he had received the toxin's note. He shrugged his shoulders. No, he was better here. He had learned all that he could have hoped to learn. Yes, and more. No, that was not quite true. He had, rather, only substantiated beyond question what had already decided in his own mind could be the only logical conclusion to the affair of last night when the kitten and Bunty Myers, playing steeny clots and his companion Apaches for dupes, had attempted to secure the stolen funds of the defunct Banco Santos. His jaws closed with a snap. Whisperings! How many times before had he listened to the voice of the underworld breathing its secrets through the underground exchanges, where none save those of the aristocracy might find entrance, and where the peers of that abandoned realm of crime-land kept their fingers on the pulse of a seething, disturbed and moiling citizenry. And tonight the underworld was in a sort of tense ferment, watching in unholy anticipation a game of life and death that was being played out behind its guarded doors that were so effectually closed to the outer world. Jimmy Dale smiled suddenly, grimly now. He had found the underworld viciously agog, intent with glutinous eagerness upon a drama whose denouement promised to be bloodthirsty and murderous enough to satisfy even its unbridled lusts. 
Steenie Klotz, Red Jack and their companions had been played for dupes by Bunty Myers and the kitten, but the dupes were not altogether fools, nor their intellects fallen to so low an estate that they had failed to absorb the fact that one plus one made two. The kitten, and very certainly indeed Bunty Myers, had not expected that the night would end with the dupes finding Bunty Myers dead at their hands in that boat on the shore of the Sound. And of the two now, Bunty Myers was perhaps in the better case. The kitten, it transpired, had had sense enough not to stand on the order of his going, and had incontinently fled for his life. He had not been heard of since last night. Again Jimmie Dale smiled grimly. It was a logical conclusion, and it was very simple. Bunty Myers and the kitten for years had been well-known characters in the underworld, and for years they had been known to work together in Gentleman Laroque's gang. And one and one made two, that was all. Whisperings whisperings as ghouls might whisper in hideous enthusiasm at the promise of some abominable feast to come whisperings everywhere through the underground exchanges of gangland of the passing of bunty myers the police as yet were apparently in ignorance but steenie klotz and his outraged apaches had not hesitated in safe quarters to spread the story and make known the sentence they had passed upon their betrayer and the underworld in its blood-lust waited it was the law the kitten was being hunted mercilessly to his death. But so far they had not found the kitten. Jimmy Dale nodded at the gas-jet. That was what he had learned in the underworld's inner circles. And then he had returned here to the sanctuary, for it was not as Smarlinghue, but as the grey seal that he meant to play out the night. And now time dragged. He could not even begin to strip off these rags and discard the character of the drug-broken, dissolute artist until the moment arrived when he was ready to leave. It was too dangerous, for in the meantime someone, anyone, a lodger even in the same tenement here, might come and— He sat up suddenly erect on the cot. Someone was coming. He listened. A footstep shuffled along in the hall outside and reached the door, and then someone knocked guardedly upon the panel. It was Smarlinghue, not Jimmy Dale, who spoke. "'Who's there?' he demanded ungraciously. "'It's me,' a voice croaked hurriedly. "'Let me in, Smarley. It's Mother Margot.' "'Mother Margot?' A queer smile flickered across Jimmy Dale's lips as he rose from the cot and started across the room toward the door. Mother Margot, who obeyed him as the grey seal, when she couldn't help it, perhaps. Mother Margot, who accepted Smarlinghue as one of her own ilk, and on one occasion at least as a source of assistance and an ally in her turbulent life.' What did Mother Margot want with Smarlinghue tonight? He opened the door, and, as the old hag, her shawl drawn closely around her head, entered, he closed it again behind her. "'Hello, Mother,' said Jimmy Dale facetiously. "'Ain't business good down on Thompson Street tonight?' She glanced around her furtively. "'There ain't no one here, is there?' she asked anxiously. Jimmy Dale shook his head. "'Spill it,' he invited. "'What's the matter?' Again she glanced around her, and it was almost a minute before she spoke. She twisted her hands nervously together. "'You's helped me once before, Smarley,' she whispered finally. "'I, I ain't got no one else to ask, and, and tonight I'm in bad. You's, you's'll help me again, won't you, Smarley?' Jimmy Dale pushed one of the two rickety chairs the sanctuary possessed toward her. "'How do I know?' he countered cautiously. 
I ain't making promises on the blind. Help yourself to the chair and I'll listen. Mother Margot shook her head quickly. I ain't got no time to sit down, and I ain't got no chance for anything only maybe to get croaked tonight if yous won't help me. I ran all the way over here, and, and I was scared yous won't be here. She was wringing her hands together again, in evident terror and nervousness. Oh, my God! If yous hadn't been here, smiling, I— Her voice broke and ended in a choked sob. Jimmy Dale's eyes, from the crouching, dishevelled, shawled and spectacled old creature, sought the shadows cast by the flickering gas-jet that played along the edge of the threadbare strip of carpet at his feet. He did not question the genuineness of her distress. He had very good reason to believe in it most thoroughly. He was even vitally, personally, intimately concerned in it, for, back of it, where Mother Margot was involved, must be the phantom's hand. He smiled queerly to himself. What it was that had brought her here, he, as Jimmy Dale, must know, but that knowledge could only be obtained through Smarlinghue, and Smarlinghue was, well, Smarlinghue was Smarlinghue. "'Well, don't lose your nerve,' said Smarlinghue a little sharply, "'or maybe you'll get me scared, too, and the deal'll be off before it started. The time before you got me to go hunting for English Steve, and I found him murdered.' What is it this time? I, I've got to try and get a message to someone, she said anxiously. That's what you said when it was English Steve, observed Smarlinghue judiciously. Well, shoot, who is it tonight? Again she did not answer immediately. Again she glanced furtively around her. And then she spoke, her voice scarcely audible. The Grey Seal. The Grey Seal? Involuntarily, Jimmy Dale gasped. He stared at her. He could quite understand that she might seek the grey seal, but this was irony in its sublimest form, wasn't it? And then suddenly he remembered. The night he'd saved himself here by playing his dual role, the new heights to which Smarlinghue had risen in the underworld through that supposed encounter. It had almost secured him initiation into the confidences of Bunty Myers and the rest of the Phantom's followers, of which Mother Margot here was one. That was it because he had once been known to have been in actual, physical touch with the Grey Seal, and would therefore perhaps be able to recognize him again. And she had come to the Grey Seal himself. It was exquisite. He felt her eyes boring into him from behind her heavy lensed spectacles. He smiled with exaggerated derision. But mentally now, he knew no mirth. That was only one side of it, the strange irony of it. There must be something of no ordinary importance that could have prompted her to act like this. What was it? She who, again and again, had been compelled to act under the Grey Seal's orders, under his orders, who, only that afternoon, had received her instructions, or, perhaps better, warning from him over the telephone. "'It's too easy,' scoffed Smarlinghue, and grinned broadly. Oh, anybody's got to do that once the grey seals to go out on the corner and whistle for him. My God! The exclamation came piteously. She wrung her hands the harder together. Well, said Jimmy Dale, still facetiously, what's the idea then? You think just because he roughhoused me here one night that he left his calling card and wrote his address on it before he went away? Or maybe you think he took his mask off and says, Smarly, drop around any afternoon for a cup of tea. I'll always be at home to you. Well, he didn't. There ain't a bull or a leg that ain't been hunting him for years, and they're still hunting. 
How do you expect me to find him? She seemed hardly to be paying any attention. Her fingers were working nervously with her shawl, now loosening it, now tightening it around her throat, and she still kept on glancing in all directions, furtively around her. "'Smalley, for God's sake, listen!' she burst out wildly. "'I ain't asking yous to find him. I'm asking yous to help me. I got to have someone I can trust. Maybe yous won't have to do nothing at all. Yous won't see him. It'll only be on the telephone. I, I've been working with him for weeks now.' It was exquisite. There was humour here for Jimmy Dale. But Smiley's jaw dropped helplessly. "'The Grey Seal! And you?' He gulped, swallowing hard. She nodded her head in a sort of helpless way. "'Yes,' she said. "'My God, I'm handing it to you straight, and, and I'm in bed tonight. You's helped me once, and there ain't no one else I dares go to. And you's will help me, won't you, Smiley, if I swear to you's that there ain't no risk or nothing like that for you's, and that there ain't no one going to know you's was in it at all.' Jimmy Dale, as smiling you, examined meditatively, the ragged, frayed sleeve of his coat. "'All right,' said Jimmy Dale, cautiously. "'If I'm as safe as that, I won't see you stuck. But you've got to show me first. What do you want me to do?' She reached out and caught his hand impulsively, and wrung it hard. "'God bless you, Smiley!' There was a world of relief in her voice, husky and broken though it was. "'I knew you would, Smiley. I knew you would. Listen.' Yous knows where my pushcart is on Thompson Street. Well, just near it is Metzo's second-hand shop, and there's a side door to that, up the lane. That door ain't locked, and old Metzo's away tonight, and the shop is shut up. And there's a telephone in there in this back storeroom. It's kept there on the quiet, see? All you've got to do, Smiley, is go in there and wait, and answer the telephone if it rings. There ain't nobody going to see yous, and there ain't nobody going to know yous are there. If it rings, it'll be the Grey Seal, and you'll give him a message from me. Jimmy Dale, as Smiley-you, whistled a little dubiously under his breath. And they said he always worked alone, he observed plaintively. Say, he'd get bumped off for this if any of the fleets knew about it. You're pretty thick, ain't you? He puts in a telephone for you and... No, he didn't, she shook her head vigorously. He had nothing to do with it. It's, it's another crowd. He got wise to it, that's all. And one night he caught me cold in... Oh, my God, Smiley, never mind about that. I, I'm in wrong with the whole works. I, I got to get a message to him tonight if I can. Well, why don't you go and find him, then, and can the telephone stuff, inquired Jimmy Dale, in his role of smiling you. Because I don't know where he is, and know more about him than yous do's, she said almost hysterically. Don't you understand, Smiley? He calls me to the phone when he wants me, and the times he's shown himself was when he was wearing a mask, like he had the night he bust in on yous here. Well then, prodded Jimmy Dill, why don't you stick around and listen for the telephone yourself tonight? Mother Margot was wringing her hands again. Do you think I'd have come here and put yous wise to what I have if I could have done that? She cried wildly. That's what's the matter. It, it's the other crowd that's pulling something tonight, and... And I got to go and do something they's told me to do. I got to go. I don't dare not to go. They, they'd cut me trout if I didn't. And, and it's something the Grey Seal's got to know about, or else he, oh my God, Smiley, can't you understand? He'd put me in wrong, and I'd get finished anyway. He's pulling something himself tonight, but it's no good now. 
cause something else is going to happen and he'd known afterwards that i knew and if i didn't wise him up that's my finish too smarlinghue circled his lips with the tip of his tongue and scowled unhappily say he said heavily you're in nice ain't you how do you know it won't be the other crowd you're talking about the bunch that you said put the phone in there that rings up and then i'd get stung too "'Cause they knows I ain't going to be there. Ain't I telling you that?' Mother Margot answered miserably. "'If the phone rings, it'll be the Grey Seal. There's no one else that ask for Mother Margot.' "'And suppose he don't ring up at all?' inquired Smilinghue. "'I don't know.' Mother Margot's face seemed to whiten a little. "'My God, Smiley, I don't know. That's what's got me so scared. I ain't even saying you will. I, I'm only hoping. It's the only chance I got.' I know mebby where I could find him a couple of hours from now, but it'll be too late then. I, I can't do nothing more, Smiley, can I? I can't do nothing more. If he don't telephone, the only chance I got is to try and make him believe I did me best, that's all. And if he don't believe me, I, I guess I goes out for keeps. Jimmy Dale for a moment appeared to consider the matter. I ain't quite sure I get you, he said slowly at last, except that it looks to me like... Between the two of them, it don't make much difference whether you're coming or going. And this telephone stunt looks like a long shot to me. But I don't see where I get hurt any, and if it's going to ease your mind, I'll stand in. So what's the message I'm to give if he telephones? Mother Margot's face brightened. Thank God for you, Smiley, she faltered. You's as white as they makes em. You's just say that the message is from me, and the voice is going to pull the big bump tonight and to watch french jeff down at the white rat you understand smiley jimmy dale shook his head no i don't he said but if he does it's all right i suppose i'm satisfied i'm not for mixing in and getting my hair singed but if he asks me what the bump is and what time it's going to bust loose what do i say nothing said mother margot there ain't nothing more to tell him cause that's all i knows myself but I knows it's the big showdown all right, and the dope is straight. He won't need nothing more, I guess, if he wants to butt in. Jimmy Dale nodded indifferently. It was precisely what he wanted to know, the exact extent of the old hag's information. Mother Margot shuffled her feet nervously. I got to go, Smarley, she said anxiously. The day goes running me pushcart for me for the rest of the night, but he don't know nothing about this, so don't you give him the high sign. You understand about the side door in the lane? Sure, said Smarlinghue. And while we're standing here talking, maybe he's telephoned already and pulled a bone. Mother Margot shook her head. That don't matter, she said. He knows Metso don't always hear, and sometimes it's hard to get an answer. If he was trying to get me, he'll try again until he does. She hesitated, drew her shawl tightly about her head again, took a step toward the door, and once more hesitated. "'God bless you, Smiley,' she said brokenly. "'Mebby you think you does, but you don't know what you are doing for me tonight. Maybe I'll pull out of this alive, and maybe I won't. But don't you ever forget, Smiley, if you never sees me again, that there ain't no one in this world means anything to Mother Margot like you does, Smiley, and—and—' Her voice broke. She was crying. Jimmy Dale started forward impulsively as he saw the old shoulders shake, and a tear, followed by another, trickle unchecked down her cheek. But she turned her head quickly away, 
and scuffled hurriedly toward the door before he had reached her. But at the door she turned again. "'God bless you, Smiley,' she called again, and closed the door behind her. End of chapter 25「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.